Take your Bibles this morning with me, if you would please, and open them to Romans chapter 8. The book of Romans, the 8th chapter, one of the greatest chapters in Scripture, in my opinion. Uh, While you're turning there, I'll just give a public service announcement. Uh, When we dismiss this morning, we're going to dismiss front row to the back. So all of you who decided to sit in the back, you'll be last to leave. Uh, And you, you have to clean up a little bit as well. Uh, if you sat in the front row, good choice, Katrina. <laughs> All right, Romans chapter 8. Now, you should know by now that we have attempted to enjoy this Christmas season by looking at how Scripture primarily defines the birth of the Lord, and it does so by calling Him sent, that He is the one who has been sent from the Lord or from the Father. And that language elevates the significance of his birth, and it elevates the significance of his entire life. It implies purpose, it implies a plan and diligence and focus, something extraordinary about this individual and about the life that he lives. It's not just happenstance that he fell into creation, he was sent on purpose. And that language drives us to consider his life in a deeper light. Now, in the last few weeks, we have looked at several reasons, and there are many, many more, but we've looked at several, a few reasons for which Christ was sent. We started this Christmas season looking, looking in 1 John chapter 4. We saw that Jesus was sent to show us, reveal to us the love of God and to teach us to love like God. Galatians 4 A couple of weeks ago, we saw that Jesus was sent to make a difference. We are no longer enemies and slaves. We're now adopted sons and daughters, adopted children because God sent Christ. Last week, Doug opened the Bible and turned our attention to Matthew 21. And we saw that Christ was sent as God's final appeal of love. His final act of patience. Offering repentance to anyone who would come to Him. Well, today, we come to what is the all-encompassing reason for the Lord being sent. The very centerpiece of the gospel message. And it is that Jesus was sent to deal with our sin. That's the whole purpose. The whole meaning. The whole centrality of the Christmas season and the birth of our Lord. He was sent to save. That is the greatest message a preacher can preach. It's the greatest message human ears can hear. It's the greatest message a human heart can know. And it is that singular truth that makes the birth of our Lord meaningful. If Christ wasn't sent to save, and if Christ didn't save with His life, His birth wouldn't mean much to us. It's that singular truth that Jesus has come to deal with our sins that makes His birth all worthwhile. I have written here as I was studying and thinking about this text, without this truth, Christmas would not be worth celebrating. Humanity would not know salvation. And we would of all, in Paul's words, we would of all people be most to be pitied. 1 Corinthians 15, 29. 
the truth that we look at in Romans chapter 8 that Paul is going to explain is so central and foundational to our lives. Really, church, what we're looking at in connection with Christ being sent uh, via His birth is foundational to us. It is our only hope. In other words, it defines us, it secures us, it inspires us, it renews us, it makes us who we are, and it makes the birth of our Lord worth celebrating. Makes it precious. The very verses we're looking at today and the very gospel message itself is the crescendo of God sending His Son. So look with me in Romans chapter 8. And we'll drop down to just two verses this morning, verse 3 and verse 4. Paul writes in verse 3, he says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The first thing we want to look at this morning is in the first part of verse 3. It's the problem of the law. The problem of the law. I recently had a conversation with a gentleman. Actually, it was just this week. And it's interesting how God's timing works all things together so that they apply and connect. And this conversation I had this week with this gentleman was troubling to me. This man thought he knew the solution to all of life's problems. Now that's common. Uh, every worldview understands that humanity is imperfect and broken. And in fact, we as human beings are quick to claim that, right? Anytime we make a mistake, we're, we're quick to self-justify that humanity is not perfect. So every worldview and, and every person understands that. Uh, and also every worldview claims to have a solution to that problem, a solution to that imperfection. And so does every person. This particular gentleman made a shocking and yet very familiar statement to me. And I wrote it down as best as I could remember. He thought that the answer or the solution to the problem of humanity lay within humanity. And he said to me, why would I go to something outside of myself to fix something within me? I was trying to convey to this man that he needs to seek the Lord. He needs to turn to Christ. And he needs to look to Jesus for the answers. And that's what he responded with. Why would I go to something outside of me to fix something that's wrong within me? He said, that doesn't make any sense to me. And then he began to explain his view. The answer to a person's problems is within the person himself. It's what's on the inside. And that's where he will find his solution. You just need to love yourself. That's a very common uh, viewpoint. Uh, frequently that answer is fleshed out to us. And that, that really is nothing more than the fleshing out of, of pride itself. Many people, unfortunately, will agree with this man's assessment that the answer to life's problems is found on the inside of myself. I need to just love myself, make myself better, look within, do whatever brings me pleasure, whatever makes me happy. and. Even unfortunately, well-meaning Christians can fall into that trap of thinking right. Well, as I sat there, the man didn't let me finish the conversation. He, he gave his answer and then he um, abruptly left. And 
concluded our conversation, but I thought to myself, there's an obvious problem with that statement. One that I think even common sense and logic should expose. That is that whatever is broken by the nature of its broken self cannot fix itself. Broken things can't become unbroken. They are broken by their definition. Broken by their nature. That's what it means to be broken. And I even thought as I was having this conversation with this man, it, it's, it's even deeper, it's a d- deeper issue as we consider the human soul, not just external troubles in our life. It's not just that you're broken. The truth is that you are the very cause of your brokenness. It's not just that life is bad and things are wrong and there's evil in the world and, and people are corrupted and you have bad thoughts. That, those things are all true. The reality is you're the very cause of the evil in your heart. The very cause of the brokenness in your life. The very cause of the corruption. The very cause of the evil thoughts. That is the real problem with humanity. And that's why this viewpoint of Self-correction uh, is totally flawed. And side note, that's why pride doesn't allow us to see ourselves as we truly are. Pride says we're just broken and we need fixing and we can figure it out. The gospel says you're the cause of your own brokenness and you don't just need fixing, you need conquering. You need redeeming, you need newness, you need a complete overhaul. That's what God says. And then he goes further and he says, no human effort can avail the brokenness within you. No work that you do can correct the issue of your heart. You are broken to your core. Well, that most clearly applies to our salvation, doesn't it? There's not a thing we can do to correct the problem that exists between us and God. We don't have the ability to course correct. Now let's answer a little bit of of why we're the cause of brokenness because I, I know or at least hope you're thinking I'm not consciously setting out to sabotage my own life. I'm not consciously setting out to ruin everything in my own life. None of us would do that. We pursue peace and pleasure too aggressively for that to be the case. So what do I mean when I say we are the cause of our own brokenness well i would encourage you do not minor on this truth do not minor on understanding our uh, human fallen state before god we need to major on understanding who we are without christ we are the cause of our brokenness because of what paul is alluding to in verse three we have transgressed the law of god and not only have we done so in action or deed we've done so in Nature, at the very core of who we are apart from Christ, this is the reality of all humanity. And it's no secret to the innermost recesses of your own heart. At the core of who we are, we are opposite of God. We love the opposite things of God. We desire the opposite things of God. We think about the opposite things of God. We do the opposite things of God. It it doesn't take much time of self-reflection for me to realize I am prone to do the things that God despises. I'm prone to pervert the goodness 
of God's blessings. That's who we are at our core. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. Because here's the problem with the law. And as it pertains to us in our fallen state. He says, God has done what the law could not do. The law couldn't accomplish something. Now, I want to pause and say God did not hand down a flawed system. God did not give us something that was inherently broken. Broken. What Paul's talking about is the law was unable to save us. It was unable to cure our issue. It's unable to address the inside of our, our souls. It does not fix the problem. It does not create the overhaul that's necessary. But God didn't hand us a broken law. In fact, we have to understand the law is merely the reflection of the character of God. That's why when we say a failure to meet up to the law or transgress the law, we've sinned against God. That's why Romans 3.23, Paul would say, for all have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of the law? No, short of the glory of the Lord. Short of the glory of God. Because the law reflects the nature and character of God. So when we transgress the law, when we break the law of God, we are sinning against the character and nature of God. God, we're not just breaking the law, we're rejecting God and who He is and what He stands for. And where's the problem in this law? Why can it not save us? Paul tells us because it's been weakened by the flesh. I think of Paul talking in Romans, I mean Philippians chapter 3 about the life he lived before Christ and he was an elite Pharisee and he, he practiced the law according to, to every letter of it and he was extraordinary in doing so. And he says in that chapter, I was seeking a righteousness of my own. Only to realize I needed the righteousness of God. That's because the law has been weakened by us. It's weakened by our flesh, weakened by our sinfulness. That's why it cannot save. We cannot keep it. And since we cannot keep it, it proves to be nothing to us but condemnation. In fact, in chapter 7, Paul says this over the book of Romans, verse 10. He says, the very commandment, talking about the law, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Verse 13 of that same chapter, he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no, me by no means it was Sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here's the problem with the law. We try to use it to course correct what's broken on the inside. The individual that I had the conversation with when he's talking about you know, looking on the inside, he's talking about trying to be a better person, upholding higher morals, doing better things, being good as, as best as he can define it. The problem with that is the measurement of good is God. And the measurement of God's good is the law. And none of us stack up to the measurement. None of us stand against God's law and pass the test. None of us measure up against God, the ultimate good, the definition of good, and pass the test. 
The problem with the law is that we have weakened it and therefore it cannot do something. It cannot save. The problem with looking at yourself for the solution to your life's sinfulness, your unsatisfaction, your lack of fulfillment, your your confusion, your heartache, the problem with looking at yourself to find an answer to all of those things is you're the very cause of those things and there is no good within you, no, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, 11, 12, and, and on. Paul says that explicitly. No one is good, no, not one. No one has sought after God. We have weakened God's law by our inability to keep it Therefore, it cannot make us righteous. We do not measure up to it. And instead of being able to live under it, it proves to be condemnation to us. We are now in the gravest of places as humanity. We don't measure up to God's law and God's character and God's standard. Now we're under the weight of its condemnation. And it goes even further still. It's not just that we don't measure up to God's law. We have willfully transgressed it. What does that mean? Well, it means not only are we going to be measured on the last day by the Lord. By the way, everyone will give an account to Christ, the judge, and the end. And it's not only that He's going to look at us and say, you didn't measure up to my law. He's going to look at us and say, you broke my law. You transgressed my law. That means justice is demanding something. Justice is demanding punishment. Oh, understand the seriousness of sin now. Not only does it prevent us from measuring up to good and to God, but it only incurs punishment. A just God cannot ignore sin. And here's the reality that we all need to hear. There is no standing before God on the final day and arguing your case and thinking I've done enough, I've been good enough, I haven't done this or that, or I've tried really hard. Good intentions do not matter because we have committed cosmic treason when we look the Creator in the face, look His law in the face, and disregard it. That's not necessarily the message we want to think about before Christmas, is it? I just want to open gifts. I want to be with family and eat good food. I don't want to hear about how doomed I am in my sin. And yet we cannot understand the birth of Christ until we first understand the significance of how fallen we are. We do not measure up against God's law, against God's standard, and even more so, we've broken it and deserve punishment for that. Need punishment for that. Well, this is where we encounter the rest of the text this morning. Because praise God, He doesn't leave us in that kind of condition. He offers a way out. He offers redemption. He offers forgiveness. He offers hope and love. And that's what Paul is saying here. The law could not save us because it's been weakened by the flesh. But then we see the language that we've been focusing on this Christmas season. But God, by sending His own Son, 
has condemned sin in the flesh. There's the language there, sending His own Son. It's, it's the act that God is bringing about, that Paul is beginning verse 3 with. God is doing something because we didn't keep the law, and we are therefore doomed and condemned under the law. So God intervened. And what did, what did He do to intervene? He sent His own Son. Well, if you know me, I like to, to sometimes focus on singular words in various passages. And, and as I was reading this one, I focused on the word own, O-W-N. Because it's a personal word. It's an investment kind of word. It's a commitment kind of word. God sent His own Son. He didn't send some angel. He didn't send some created being. He sent His own Son. There's significance there. Now I've heard people share before that when they think of that, they think, yeah, I I could probably lay down my own life for my child or my spouse or a loved one. We see people do that often, don't we? Die for someone they care about. Sacrifice their own life for their child or grandchild or, or spouse. And so they don't quite understand the significance of what God is saying when He says, I sent my own Son for you. Because we think, well, yeah, I would go for those and die for those for whom I loved. In fact, people do that in this life. But we know that God sending His own Son should hearken a deeper significance in our lives, right? Because He didn't send His Son for children, for His other children. He didn't send His Son... To die for a spouse. He didn't send his son to die for a a loved one. Luke 4. Jesus says he came for those who are far off. Romans 5. Paul says he sent his son. To die for the ungodly. While we were still sinners to die. You see it's not that God is expressing the same kind of love here. That we see humanity express when they sacrifice their own life for somebody they love. God's expressing a deeper kind of love here. In fact, it's not even adequate to say and ask you, would you give your life for your neighbor or your stranger? Because soldiers do that regularly in battle. It's better to ask yourself in trying to understand the significance of God sending His own Son for us. It's better to ask yourself, would you give up your own life for your demeaning and belittling boss at work? Or for the schoolyard bully? Would you give up your life for an abusive husband? Or an abusive father? Would you give your life up for the abortion doctor? Or the rapist? Or the Nazi soldier? Or today's tyrant? Or the murderer? Or someone who's stolen something from you? Even more so, are you willing to take the place of someone who is quite clearly guilty? The the act of murder that they have committed is so obviously clear that it was them. Would you go and take the handcuffs off of them, place them on yourself, stand before the judge and receive their death sentence so that they could live and be free? Well, that's a far better analogy to understand God sending His own Son because it's not just that God sent His Son for 
for the victims, for the broken and the outcasts and the social unwanted. God sent His Son for the predator. God sent His Son for the sex addict and the drug addict and the liar and the hypocrite and the atheist and the abortionist, the self-righteous and the confused and, and the arrogant. God sent His Son for the worst of the worst. God sent His Son for you and for me and for anyone else we may fill in the blank with. See, this is a love far beyond what you and I can express. This is a significance far beyond what you and I even know at some point in time. Yeah, we can understand giving our lives for our children, our spouse. People do that. And at some point in time, that moment may come where you may do that. We understand giving our lives for our neighbors and our and strangers because we have American soldiers dying all the time for us. They don't know us. We don't know them, but they lay down their life for our freedom and liberties. We do not understand dying for the criminal, the ungodly, the crooked, the wretched, the despicable. And yet, that is who we are in our sinful state transgressing the law of God. And yet still, Paul writes, God is going to do something by sending His own Son. Don't let pride cause you to think too highly of yourself. Apart from Christ, we are the ungodly. We are the wicked, the despicable, the criminal. I find it so significant. Again, Romans chapter 5, verse 6. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You've heard me say this before. I will say it again. Who did He die for? Was it the okay? Was it the morally good people? Was it the financially good people? Was it the average common American? He died for the ungodly. And if you are to accept salvation in Christ, you must understand, I am the ungodly. That's who He came for. I'm opposite of who God is. I don't stand in comparison to Him. I don't measure up. I don't add up. I've weakened the law. It cannot save me. I cannot look within. I'm hopeless. But God has sent His own Son. And He's done that out of love. What does John chapter 3, verse 16 say? God so what loved the world. The ungodly. The transgressors. The sinful. It's not a love, again, that you and I can understand completely. It's not a love that you and I would have for our family. It's a divine love for an enemy, for a transgressor of a holy law, a sinner against a holy God, and for a traitor who has committed cosmic treason. And what has, what has Christ accomplished in being sent? Paul mentions three things in this verse real quick. Number one, he says he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh. This is where the birth of our Lord enters into the picture here. He was sent in the likeness of you and I. We saw that last week in Galatians chapter 4. At the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, what born of woman, born under the law. He lived and experienced and dwelt in this life just as you and I do. He came as one of us, for us. I do want to say something quite clearly though. 
this text does not mean that he was sinful like us. And there are two reasons I would say why. First is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 22 and 23. Talking about Jesus, Peter writes, He committed no sin, very clearly. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Peter even gives an example in verse 23. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who who judges justly. So the first reason that likeness of sinful flesh does not equate to sinful flesh is the Bible tells us Jesus was sinless. Second is the very usage of the word likeness. The very usage of the word dictates that he's the opposite of whatever he's in the likeness of. It's it's a word that's used for the sake of comparison. means that the opposite is true of him. It's like he wasn't like us, but in the likeness of us is an important distinction. He is God. He is not like us. He's existed in eternity past. He's worth all praise and glory and worship. He is not like us at all. And yet he was in the likeness of us. Taking on human flesh, humbling himself. Philippians chapter 2, becoming born like a man, becoming a servant, dwelling among us in this human life. It's not that we have a sinful Savior. We have one who took on flesh as you and I experience it and live in it. He didn't commit sin in it. He endured it. And why did he take on sinful flesh? Why did he come in the likeness of sinful flesh? Why born via a virgin? Because humankind had transgressed God's law. And humankind was responsible for God's law. And no human being could atone for his own sins. Again, we've weakened the law. It couldn't do anything for us. We're imperfect. We couldn't be the spotless sacrifice that was required. So Christ entered into humanity on our behalf to die as our sacrifice. You notice what Paul says in there in verse 3. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and what? For sin. You know how significant that term is? Christ knowingly came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. That was His purpose. That was His plan. He didn't come to bring about a moral revolution. He didn't come to bring about a political revolution. He didn't come to to, uh, bring about any kind of social order or anything like that. He came to address our problem of sin. Paul goes on the second thing we see in this text of how he's acting and being sent. He condemned sin in the flesh. How? Two significant texts. Stick with me just a little bit longer. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, even though He knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter again, chapter 2, verse 24 this time. Jesus Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, you have been healed. Paul tells us that we have weakened the law and it cannot do for us what we need it to do. So God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to address the sin problem, to condemn sin in the flesh. How did He condemn sin in the flesh? By taking it upon Himself. Understand the reality here. Our sin is serious. It deserves punishment. It is a violation of a holy law. A rejection of God Almighty. And we are doomed because of it. Yet God loved us even when we're ungodly. So much so that He sent His Son to condemn sin in the flesh by taking your sin and my sin upon Himself personally. Jesus became personally responsible for my sin. Every sinful desire, every sinful thought, every sinful act committed, every sinful intention, every part of my sinful nature, Christ endured the wrath of God for it. He was punished for it as if He was the one who had broken God's law. My worst choices, my worst thoughts, my worst intentions, Jesus drank in my punishment. And He died for it. Strung up in humiliation. Blood flowing out of His body for our sin. He came for sin to condemn it in the flesh by being a willing sacrifice. Willing sacrifice. And yet, though He was dead in the grave and though He died for sin, how did He end up condemning it in the flesh? He resurrected. He claimed a victory in His resurrection. Paul equates that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the whole chapter talking about the significance of Christ resurrecting. And in verse 54 and 55 and 56, he says this, and 57, he says, Death is swallowed up in victory because Christ is resurrected. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He takes our sin upon Himself, dies on the cross for it, and resurrects to declare victory over it. That it might be condemned in the flesh. Which means for you and I, that we might experience forgiveness. Forgiveness. Church. It is the most unfair transaction that has ever occurred. The most unfair transaction that you will ever know. Because a perfect and holy God who had been sinned against has every right to justly punish every transgressor. And yet, love is in His heart and mercy bubbles up from His core. And grace is rich within Him and it lavishes out onto us in Christ. 
And this holy and perfect and just God who had been sinned against sent His Son to be punished in our stead. And this is the third act that He does in being sent. Verse 4, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's imputed righteousness. It's not that Christ's death makes us a better person. It's that Christ's death replaces the sinful us and makes us new and righteous in Him. Let me tell you something quite clear. The only people getting into heaven are those who keep the law of God. You think about it and you don't stand up. But Christ has kept it for us. So that we who are born again and place our faith in Him might meet that righteous requirement of the law. God will look at those of us who are born again in Christ and say, You are righteous. You have kept my requirement. Enter into the joy of your master. Why? Because you've been good enough? No. We weaken the law. It's because Christ has been good enough. He took on sin condemned it in the flesh in order that this requirement might be fulfilled in us, that we might be seen as righteous. Again, the most unfair transaction to ever occur. I would turn your attention to Romans chapter 4, verse 24 and 25. Talking about the faith of Abraham, Paul writes, it will be counted to us that very same righteousness through faith. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Look at the ownership of that verse. Delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification. We have life, can have life, can meet the righteous requirement of the law because Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with our problem of sin by condemning it in His flesh that we might be forgiven and meet the standard. Now real quick, let me wrap up here by saying this is only for a few. I I fear that you would be sitting there listening this morning and think, praise the Lord, this applies to me. The reality is it may not yet apply to you. Because Paul tells us it only applies to certain people. Verse 4 he says, Christ has done all this in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who is the us? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There are two groups of people here and only one of them benefit from what Christ has done. Two groups of people here and only one of them have verse 3 and 4 applied to them. And it's those who walk by the Spirit. One of the greatest tragedies in humanity is those who think they're saved and they're not. Those who think all, all this applies to them. God loves them. God has, has forgiven their, their sins. Has condemned uh, their sin in the flesh. Has applied the righteous requirement of the law to them. And yet they live in the flesh. They know nothing of a relationship with God. That distinction Paul uses there in verse 4 is quite 
common in Scripture. It is to distinguish those who are born again and those who are not. Those who are not born again walk according to the flesh. They still live according to their sinful desire. They still live according to their own broken, transgressing heart. And those who are born again are those who walk according to the Spirit. Who have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling them. Enabling them to honor Christ with their lives. And trust in Him for eternity and for salvation. Those are the two people. And the only people this text applies to. This forgiveness of sin. And righteous requirement of the law fulfilling in us through Christ. The only people this applies to are those who have the Holy Spirit of God indwelling in them. And that means you come to Christ in faith. Admitting that I cannot achieve my own salvation. And I need forgiveness of my sins. And I give you not just room in my heart. And not just part of my life. I give you everything. You are Lord of it all. Those are the ones who have the righteous requirement of the law. In them, Those who walk in the flesh and do not have salvation in Christ, the tragic truth is you are still under the condemnation of the law, still in the brokenness of your sinful flesh. And unless you turn to Christ now, now, you may be doomed forever. But for those who do have the Spirit of God, who are born again, verse 1 is a resounding celebration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why is there no condemnation? Because Christ has took it on our behalf that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Oh, unbeliever this morning, see the significance of sinning and answering to a holy God who does not mess around with your mistakes. And turn to Christ for forgiveness, immediate and lasting forgiveness. And believer this morning, is this not cause to celebrate the birth? Is this not reason to rejoice in our God and in Him sending His own Son? Well, it most certainly is. It's most certainly is significant and meaningful that because of this text, we can kneel to God as sinners confessing our sins and raise up completely, wholly forgiven. That's what this text means. And we can rejoice and live in the light that there is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, who walk according to the Spirit, who have the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled in us. We are completely and forever clean and right before God. While the birth means everything to us, the sending of His own Son means everything to us. And we ought to live and celebrate this time of the year strikingly different from those who don't know this truth. Because we know that all the sinful acts of our heart wipe away in Christ forever. Here in a minute, where the band's going to come up, we're going to pray, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I would say two things to you this morning. First, Christian, I would say, We don't come to this time in a service just to fill up 
the last few minutes and give a traditional opportunity invitation. We don't just sing a song to fill out the rest of our service. This is an opportunity to sing in response to what God has shown us. Every word in this next song, you have the opportunity to belt out before God, to God, in gratitude and adoration and in humility and thankfulness that He has forgiven us. In fact, that's your job as a Christian. Worship God in the next song in light of Scripture. An unbeliever, after I pray, everybody's going to stand. Maybe God has been working on your heart. In fact, maybe you think you've been a Christian for a very long time and maybe today you realize, I am not. I don't, I don't meet up to God's standard and I know that and there's only a fearful expectation of judgment as Hebrews 10 would say. There's not peace that I've been forgiven. Maybe today you should come repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior for salvation. I want you to know I'm going to be down here. I'm going to ask Doug to come down here this morning to be here. And you can come visit with either one of us. We would love to introduce you to the Lord. So I'm going to pray. And when I'm done, the band's going to come up. I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to respond to the Lord as is necessary. God, we are sometimes speechless at what we come to understand through Your Spirit and Your Word. Sometimes, Lord, there's so much truth that we just want to explain, that we just want to burst forth from us, that, God, we just cannot seem to convey it. So it's in that light, God, and with that heart, I beg you to continue to work in our souls with your spirit. Now, this can be such a life-changing truth. This can be such a liberating reality. Every one of us here, Lord, struggle with sin. Every one of us know what it's like to live in brokenness. And every one of us can find the solution in you. Oh, how significant is it, Lord, that we cannot look to the law anymore? We have weakened it. In fact, it condemns us. And yet you've sent your son that it might be fulfilled in us. You sent your son as a baby. You sent your son for the purpose of addressing and dealing with our sin. You sent your son for the purpose of condemning that sin. All that we might be seen as righteous if we come to Him in faith. Oh, would you move in our hearts this morning, Lord. And make that a reality for us personally. Thank you for coming. Thank you for sending. Thank you for being sent. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.